Hello and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson and I run the U.S. Center's blog on U.S. politics and policy. Every so often, we here at The Ballpark take a break from our regularly scheduled programming to bring you something extra. On the 25th of July, 2018, we hosted Joe Yuzinski, Associate Professor at the University of Florida and longtime friend of the USAT blog and the LSE U.S. Center for the event, Conspiracy Theories in the Age of Trump. The event was also chaired by Roz Taylor, research manager for the LSE Truth, Trust, and Technology Commission, which is based in the Media Policy Project in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. Play ball! Right, thanks very much, Chris. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, everyone, to the LSE on this very hot tonight. Um, it's great that you're joining us and not just lying under a hot... Uh, cold fan sweating. Um, and uh, as Chris was saying, my name is Ros Taylor. I'm research manager at the Truth, Trust and Technology Commission at the LSE. Uh, our biggest topic is misinformation. Um, we had a lot to think about recently, huge amounts of news stories. We, we're looking at platforms, we're looking at the media, and we're publishing a report in November which will have some fresh ideas on that topic. So please do look out for that. And if you want to find out more about what we're up to, just Google LSE T3. Um, the event, of course, is being hosted by the United States Centre here. Thank you very much for that. And it's being recorded. Uh, we hope a podcast will be available later. So please put your mobile on silent. Uh, of course, feel free to tweet. The hashtag, um, I'm not sure if this is the best hashtag, is LSE Conspiracy. Um, <laughs> I hope it hasn't been used before. But, um, that's, that's the one. So feel free to, to tweet as much as you like about the topic. So, I'd like to welcome Joe Wyshynski to the LSE. He's Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami. His topic is public opinion and mass media, and his focus, of course, is on conspiracy theories and why people believe in them. One of the most interesting uh, points in his research I was looking at recently is that conspiracy theories, no matter what some people might think, are not the uh, province only of Republicans. They are they cross the political spectrum. Uh, he's co-author of American Conspiracy Theories and editor of Conspiracy Theories and the People Who Believe Them. And I believe he's been named number one enemy of truth by 911truth.org. Is that correct, Joe? <laughs> yeah. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, great. And he's uh, in the media a huge amount. He's been quoted by Teen Vogue, Daily Mail, even appeared on Fox News. So, <laughs> Donald Trump is, of course, probably America's first conspiratorial president. Uh, he endorsed the Bertha movement that sought to cast doubt on Barack Obama's eligibility to be president. Um, but conspiracy theories are not a new thing in America. They've been a feature of the political landscape there for a long time. And Joe is going to talk about that and explain the kinds of people who have believed in them and their history. Um, why, are they, why are some of them more popular than others? Um, what, what are the dangers of them? Do they have a tendency, do their followers, do their believers have a tendency to embrace violence? Loads of interesting questions here. So he's going to talk for about 40, 45 minutes, and then we're going to open the floor up to questions. Um, Joe, you have the floor. Thank you. So thank you, Roz. Thank you, Chris. Thank you to the U.S. Center here at LSE for having me. Um, I didn't come over just for this. Um, I'm actually here for a month teaching a class anyway. There's a few of my students in the back. Um, so I'm staying at a hotel, and 
I have a Polish uh, housekeeper who's who's been keeping up the room for me, and I was speaking her to the I was speaking to her the other day, and the first thing she said to me is that I pronounced my name wrong. <laughs> she told me it's actually Uchensky, not Uzinski, and that's a, that's an American butchering of the name. And I said, okay, I'll make sure I tell the family. <laughs> and I said, I said, you know, there's a famous politician in Poland right now. He's in the Law and Justice Party named Porter Uzinski, and he's the one who wants to ban abortion and pornography and all sorts of other stuff. Um, I, if I'm a relation, it's very distant, I'm sure. Um, but she said to me, you know, I don't really follow politics. And I said, oh, how come? And she said, she looked around down an empty hall and said, you never know what's behind the closed door. <laughs> and that sort of sums up what I'm going to talk about tonight, this sort of feeling that something there, there's something going on that we don't know about, and it's something that Donald Trump was, was able to tap into, and many times he just did so directly by saying, there's something going on. You know, We don't know what's behind the closed door. Um, so that's the name of the talk. Um, the first book here, American Conspiracy Theories, came out uh, a couple of years ago, and you can buy that on Amazon. Um, the next one you can buy on Amazon in three months for Christmas. They make great gifts. If you want to tweet along, um, that's my that's my hashtag. If you you know get angry or something, don't just shout it. Just put it on Twitter where it belongs. Um, so before I start, just 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 a quick note: we should all be nice to each other. There are three things we shouldn't talk about: religion, politics and then conspiracy theories. And there's a reason why conspiracy theories get, get people so angry, and the reason is that it deals with power and truth. And those are things that we really care about, but they're things that we have very different views of. So my truth is often different from your truth, right? It doesn't mean that there's a different reality, but just our views are incredibly different. So you guys don't have Thanksgiving here, but we, we have Thanksgiving back in, 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 in the U.S. But if you ever have a big family meal that you all get together with the extended family after a few bottles of wine, start talking about a few conspiracy theories, and you'll see what I'm telling you here. Um, you might not be invited back next year um, for the meal um, because some people will get probably upset. But I hope not to do that to you tonight. Um, the data... Um, that I'm going to talk about tonight comes from a series of national surveys that we've conducted in the U.S., and I'll even talk a little bit about some U.K. and E.U. data if the questions come up. I've collected uh, some letters to the editor of the New York Times. We got a 1,000 letters a year, just a random sample of published letters, um, from every year from 1890 to 2010, so about 120,000 letters. I made my graduate assistants read all of them, and when they were finished, that's what they looked like. <laughs> um, and we picked out all the ones that had any sort of conspiracy theory in it, and we wound up with a time series of conspiracy <coughs> accusations that people were expressing over time. And the reason we did that is because polls don't go back a long ways, and particularly not polls asking the questions that we care about about conspiracy theories. So we had to find a new way to gauge what conspiracy theories were, were hot on people's minds going back, and that's, that's why we did that. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some Google data and some, some other internet data um, when we get to talking about the internet. So a conspiracy, just to be clear about how I'm using my terms, 
We have a small group of powerful people. They're acting in secret. They're working for their own benefit. And they're working against the common good. And the way that we use the term conspiracy in common parlance isn't the same way that a, that, that a, a lawyer might use it in the U.S. So I'm going beyond a conspiracy to knock over the 7-Eleven or a conspiracy to... Um, you know, have your lover kill your husband so you can get the inheritance money. So I'm going beyond those simple criminal acts. And I'm talking about big attacks on our bedrock ground rules, um, things that involve widespread fraud. Um, and a conspiracy is real because we know that it happened because our epistemological institutions have verified it. So, for example, we know that Watergate happened we know that Nixon um, engaged in bribery, um, did a whole bunch of terrible things with the CIA and the IRS, and had people break into offices and then try to cover it up because Congress investigated, the courts had trials, people went to jail, and people made admissions. So we know it's real. Now, a conspiracy theory, in contrast, um, doesn't explain you know, a particular event, but it explains something that could have happened in the past, could be ongoing, or could be something that's about to take place in the future. So, for example, I have neighbors back home who think that our dollars are going to be taken away from us and replaced with Ameros, and it's going to be the new North American currency of Canada, Mexico, and the U.S. So they, they're, they're waiting for their Ameros to come out. Still don't have any yet. Um, and it appeals to a conspiracy to explain something, right? So just like the conspiracy, a conspiracy theory has your small group acting in secret for their own benefit and against the common good. And again, it goes beyond a criminal act. It's beyond simple acts. And it's a big attack on our bedrock ground rules. But the difference is that it could be real. But our institutions have not verified that it is. So our best example is that if you think Castro or the Soviets or Johnson or the CIA or the military-industrial complex killed Kennedy, then you're engaging in a conspiracy theory. Because the institution that we should be looking to to explain this is the Warren Commission who investigated it and said it was a single shooter named Lee Harvey Oswald who committed it. So that's the difference between conspiracy and conspiracy theory. So how many Americans agree with different conspiracy theories? So here's some results from different polls in the last few years. JFK assassination conspiracy theories, still a majority. Polls around 60% now. So that's amazing that you have something that high. But actually, that's about 20 points lower than where it was in the 1990s, where it was close to 80%. So people don't agree with the Warren Commission. Uh, at their apex, birther and truther theories were about 25% of the population. So 25% thought that Barack Obama faked his birth certificate. An equal number thought that George W. Bush blew up the Twin Towers on 9-11. 21% think that the military is covering up an alien landing at Roswell. 20% uh, think that uh, the pharmaceutical companies are hiding um, the negative outcomes of vaccines, including autism. 9% um, don't want fluoride in their water, and many of them don't use fluoride toothpaste. Um, 6% think the moon landing was faked. 5% uh, think those lines you see up in the sky 
um, left by, by jet planes are actually poison being put here by the government um, to kill us or, or to dumb us down somehow. 4% believe in the reptilian elite theory that the Queen of England and all the presidents and all our ruling elite are actually lizards. And I'm not going to take any responsibility for, of this, particularly for my people, because this is a UK thing. You guys have responsibility for this. So it's actually a guy named David Icke, who's, who's, who's a Briton, and he goes around and does big shows about this, 12-hour-long shows. He sells out theaters. And then at the end of the day, they all come up and dance away the reptilian conspiracy. Um, but for evidence, you can see the scales on her neck proving her reptilian lineage. Um, so why is this important? People can have goofy beliefs, so what? Why do we care? Well, if you think that 9-11 was a hoax, then you're going to think that all policies designed to fight terror are also a hoax. So when you go through airplane security, you say, why are you doing this? This is some sort of government plot to take a naked picture. Um, if you think that Mexico is purposely sending people to murder and rape us, you're going to be against immigration. If you think that Obamacare has death panels hidden within its pages, you're going to be against it. If you think that the 1% controls everything to strangle us and kill us, then you're going to want different tax policies than someone who doesn't. If you think there's a deep state working against Donald Trump, you're going to have a very different view of the bureaucracy and how it operates. If you think climate change is a hoax, you're not going to vote for policies to mitigate climate change. If you think G GM foods are poison by big bio companies like Monsanto, then you're not going to allow those foods. If you think that there are conspirators all over the Internet to change our minds and manipulate us, well, that's probably true. <laughs> um, but don't take it too far, because if you do, you may very well want to shut down one of the greatest things that we have of our time, and that is sharing free speech and information with each other. And that's, that, will be what I, that will be a point that I end on later. Um, so are there negative consequences to this? So let me give you one of the most extreme, and, and just, just preface this by saying, you know, 60% of the country believes in JFK assassination theories, but they're not all running around committing violence. Right? They're mostly normal people. Um, but some conspiracy theories do motivate violence. So two years ago, we had a person go into a pizza shop in Washington, D.C. with a loaded gun, fire off a few rounds, because he was there to save children from a child sex ring. He believed that Hillary Clinton and other top-ranking Democratic officials were bringing kids in on a secret train underground, molesting them there as part of their weird Illuminati thing, and then they were burning the bodies in, in the pizza ovens. So after he fired off his gun, where he nearly killed people, he opens the broom closet expecting to find the stairway down um, to where the kids were being kept in chains and instead finds a broom closet. <laughs> And he was shocked. And he just went to jail for a number of years. And the judge said, you know, I get the fact that you were concerned about the children. But only a few inches separated your bullet from somebody's head. You know, if you go back 20 years, Timothy McVeigh believed the government was conspiring against people to take away their rights. He believed that the government had put a chip in him to locate him, to fight back. He used, he used fire to fight fire. He blew up the Oklahoma City building, killing hundreds of people, injuring hundreds more. 
So at the tail end, you can wind up with violence. So let me just build a, a very quick and easy model of how we might understand who's going to believe what, when, and then why. So some people are just very much into conspiracy thinking, and if you go home and visit your extended family, you're probably going to find that you have an uncle or an aunt who believes in almost every conspiracy theory you throw at them. But then you'll have an uncle or aunt who says, I don't believe any of that, it's all gibberish. So... What we found is that there's an underlying disposition that people have to one degree or another to buy into conspiracy theories. So some people are just predisposed, and other people are not. So the people on the higher end of this, we'll just call them high in conspiracy thinking, and then there are people at the low end who are more resistant to it. And most people are somewhere in the middle. And let me just say that everyone believes in at least one conspiracy theory. Most people believe in a few. Okay, but there are people who just really believe in a lot. So, so I'll use the term conspiracy theorist a few times, and I don't want to indicate that there's a dichotomy between, oh, it's those people and not us, because we're all, we can all fit into the category of conspiracy theory, theorist in one way or another. But let's just say for now that there's some people who are very disposed and other people who are less so. And then let's just add another dimension, and that is our, our political partisanship, which really drives most political thinking in the U.S. right now, besides the conspiracy stuff. Um, so on the right, very simple, Republicans, and on the left, we have our Democrats. Um, so in order for people to believe in any given theory, it has to match their disposition. So for me to buy into the idea that 9-11 was a hoax by George W. Bush, I have to be a Democrat and amenable to conspiracy theories. Just the same, if I want to believe that Barack Obama faked his birth certificate, I'm going to be a Republican and amenable to conspiracy theories. The 50% at the bottom isn't going to buy in. And our third dimension we'll add in is power. So we can think of it in terms of winners and losers. And winners feel comfortable. They generally don't turn to conspiracy theories. Um, but they have now, and I'll explain why later. Um, but generally, conspiracy theories, the people sharing them and acting on them, that's the domain of losers. So the argument that I'll make is that conspiracy theories are for losers. And I mean that in a descriptive, rather pejorative way, because in democracy, we all get to be the loser um, from time to time. Um, and to finish off the argument, I'm going to show you why Donald Trump was able to sneak into the presidency in the most unlikely election ever. And this is because he went and mobilized that section of the electorate. Republicans who are high in conspiracy thinking, so you wound up with a lot of first-time voters who wouldn't have voted for a Jeb Bush because they're too, because uh, Jeb would have been too institutional for them. So they went for a conspiracy candidate who matched their ideology. So let me build this model for you a little bit slowly and give you some details. Does everyone get the joke there? The, that's not supposed to be there. That's done in the sound studio. <laughs> so most political opinions are the product of two things. So some piece of information coming in that we have to interpret, and then a predisposition that we have to help us interpret that. And that's what leads to a political opinion. So a... Uh, uh, quick example of this is at the end of the Obama presidency, 
Um, the jobs number came in. It was the final report for unemployment under the Obama administration. And it said that unemployment had gone down to about 4.4%, which is really good considering we've come out of the recession going on for 10 years. Republicans looked at that number and said, that number's faked, or it's not really picking up on what's really happening out there. They said, terrible job, Obama. Democrats looked at that number and said, wow, that's amazing. Great job, Obama. Two very different interpretations. But it's the same information. And the reason for that is that the dispositions that people have is very different. So something we have to consider when we deal with conspiracy theorists or with people of another party is that they're often doing the exact same thing that we're doing, is that they're just interpreting information based on their predispositions. So, so to measure this, how can we figure out who's high in conspiracy thinking and who's, who's low in it? So what we did on our surveys is we put these, these, these three statements here, and we asked people to, to agree or disagree with these. So much of our lives are being controlled by plots hatched in secret places. Even though we live in a democracy, a few people will always run things. And then the people who really run the country are not known to the voters. So what we're doing with these statements is trying to get under the hood to this underlying disposition that people have towards seeing the world in conspiratorial terms. And this is what the, what the numbers looked like in 2012 when we first did this. And so we see most people sort of coming in around, around agree. Now, whether you personally agree or disagree with those statements doesn't really matter. The thing that we're trying to do is try to get difference, differentiation between different people to see who most agreed and then who least agreed. And then from these questions, we were able to get a score for each of our respondents in our surveys. And that told us where these people fit on the scale of conspiracy thinking. So I'll ask you to close your eyes just for a moment and imagine who is that, that conspiracy theorist? Who is that person? Why does somebody raise your hand and just tell me, what does that person look like? What kind of characteristics are they? What color are they? White. <laughs> Male. Male. What else? Middle-aged. Middle -aged. <laughs> Psychic powers are real. <laughs> what else? Bald. Totally conservative, bald, no, not yet. <laughs> but you can look at that and say white, male, middle-aged, you know, a little bit conservative. Oh my God, it's me. Um, and this is the popular character, and if you look around on the internet, you can find lots of examples who fit that. There's Alex Jones and some other, other characters there. So you do see, particularly some of the entrepreneurs are white, middle-aged, male, and somewhat conservative. Um, but instead, this is what the data tells us, is that it cuts evenly across gender, uh, race. Um, there are some differences along age with Gen Xers in the U.S. being a little bit more conspiratorial than the baby boomers or the generation that came after us, the millennials. Partisanship, it's even across party, with the exception of third parties that tend to be a little bit more conspiratorial, and same across political ideology. So there's a very popular show in the U.S. called The View that's, that's by women and for women, and the hosts are incredibly conspiratorial, and they often have spouted conspiracy theories. So Jenny McCarthy, who was on there for a few years, believed that uh, vaccines <coughs> caused autism. Um, Whoopi Goldberg thought the moon landing was faked. 
And Rosie O'Donnell believes that jet fuel can't melt steel. So women can do it, people of different races, different colors. The better predictors instead are wealth and education. So people who make more money and people who are more educated tend to be less conspiratorial in their thinking um, than people who are less educated and less wealthy. Now, the reasons for this aren't particularly known yet because the, the relationship could go in different directions. So it could be the case that higher-paying jobs just aren't going to hire conspiracy theorists, right? I mean, would a hospital hire a vaccine conspiracy theorist? Now, they kick them out of the profession. Would, 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 would a uh, biology department hire someone who believes that evolution is a satanic hoax? Probably not. <laughs> Um, would would a bank hire somebody who believes that, you know, the markets are all rigged? Probably not. So it could be that they're excluding certain people. On the other hand, it could be that conspiracy theorists just don't want to get involved with the institutions that pay the most um, or don't want to continue their education because they think it's all part of a hoax. So it could be going in both ways, and further study will we'll, uh, flesh that out. So I'll be back next year. <laughs> um, other characteristics of the people that are high in conspiracy thinking. One, uh, the politics is that they tend to be a little bit more independent than partisan. Um, third parties tend to be incredibly conspiratorial, and that sort of makes sense. Um, third party candidates like Jill Stein had a lot of conspiracy theories. Now the conspiracy theorists have sort of turned on her and say that she's a Russian agent. Um, the libertarians, who are also a third party in the U.S., um, they tend to be half conspiratorial and half not. So you have the Milton Friedman, uh, Friedrich Hayek uh, libertarians who sort of reject conspiracy thinking. You know, and they and they're, the libertarian magazine for them is a reason. You know, they think through things. And then you have the the big L libertarians who think that they've been kept down by the two parties through tyranny. Um, but, but regardless, third parties are, are going to be prone to this kind of thinking because they're locked out of power um, in, in the U.S. In terms of economics, um, not only do they make less money, but even accounting for that, they tend not to engage in, uh, in the stock market. And it makes perfect sense. Um, and in politics, this is very important, they are about 30 points less likely to register to vote or to vote. And they're the least likely to put up a yard sign, to volunteer for a campaign, um, or to take part in any form of, of volunteer politics. So these people are outside the system, okay, both economically and politically. And the good news is, in terms of violence, most people are against violence. Most people are against political violence. Conspiracy theorists at the high end are, are slightly more inclined towards violence against the government. Um, but when we ask conspiracy theorists, um, do you believe that uh, we should be able to commit violence against extremist groups? They say no. And why? Because they believe that they're a part of the extremist groups. They don't want to be do it. But against the government, yes, they're more, more accepting of that. Um, our second part is party. So partisanship is sort of driving everything right now. It seems like we have Republican and Democrat brains, and that really drives how, how we see the world. Um, 
we tend to think, oh, there's 30% Republicans, 30% Democrats, because that's what the polls say, and 30% independents. It really means there's 30% liars um, who like to live in the closet and just pretend to be smart and pretend to be independent and say, I don't vote for one party all the time. I'm an independent. I make up my own mind. And then you look and they vote for the same party all the time. So they just, they just want to act cool, but they're really not. Um, and that in, in the partisanship has an incredibly strong effect on everything that people do, from what they choose to wear, where they live, the food they eat, how they interact with people. So it's very powerful. Um, and it affects how we, you know, how we see the world. So we asked a question of, of, of Americans. We said, here's a list of groups. Which groups do you think are conspiring against us? And the Democrats in blue were most likely to say the corporations and conservatives are out to get us. And then the Republicans in red uh, were most likely to say liberals and communists are out to get us. So mirror image, just pointing fingers in equal numbers right back at each other. Um, so you might say, well, listen, that's even between the two. But I really think that, that my side, the Democratic side, um, and this is what Democrats always like to say, because they want to escape responsibility for their conspiracy theories. Normally. They say, but with the wacky stuff, it's really the Republicans. So when we ask about wacky stuff, so for instance, are the Freemasons out to get us? Um, even between the two parties. So there, there's no big differences in these sorts of things. Um, now, so I'm focusing on party, but let me just say that this applies to other dispositions that people have too. So for example, um, are we all familiar with the Da Vinci Code? There was a whole string of movies that came out with Tom Hanks. And so it turns out that, uh, um, Jesus had children with Mary Magdalene and those children escaped persecution to France where they became the Kings of France. And now they're secretly um, hiding their existence from the Catholic Church who wants to kill them. Um, could be true, I don't know. Uh, um, but interestingly enough, the guy who, who wrote this story lives only a few towns over from me, um, Dan Brown. Um, but anyway, the people who, people who actually believe this theory, and this, this was popular even before the book and the movie came out, people who believe this stuff, are the people who are into New Age religions, the, the, you know, they're into the, you know, the funky new stuff. Um, the people who absolutely reject it are the Catholics, because they're just not going to buy into the idea that Jesus fathered children with Mary Magdalene and that they're still alive. Okay? So people accept or reject conspiracy theories, you know, and we're going to focus on partisanship, but it happens with all of our other dispositions. Another important thing to consider is that elites tend to drive a lot of our opinions. Why? Because we look to elites, you know, the ones that we trust, um, to tell us what we should be thinking about political stuff. Um, elites have the ability to talk to lots of us because the media interviews them. Um, so our opinions are often shaped by elite rhetoric. Now, when it comes to conspiracy theories, oftentimes, you know, we hope that it's not our normal elites who are engaging in the conspiracy theories. So conspiracy theorists often have to go to their own elites, like Alex Jones, who can get his messages out, or to Coast to Coast Radio, which is a popular conspiracy radio show that runs every night. Um, 
normally you don't have our, our you know, basic political elites um, doing this. But let me just give you an example of how powerful elite messages are and then how this changes opinion. So this is a guy named Herman Cain. He ran for president in 2012. He ran for the Republican nomination for president. His claim to fame was that he had been the, the CEO of Godfather's Pizza, and he was very successful at turning that pizza chain around. It was a big pizza chain out in the Midwest. Now, as people um, started to put together um, um, the idea that Herman Cain was a Republican and had worked for Godfather's Pizza, there's a, their opinions started to change. And it just so happened that Harvard was running a repeated brand survey of Godfather's Pizza. Now, keep in mind that Herman Cain no longer worked there. But over time, as his campaign got big, Democrats started to like the pizza less, and Republicans started to like the pizza more. Of course, it's the same pizza, no matter who you are and what party you belong to. But their opinions changed based on the fact that they just started associating it with the Republican Party. So, um, very strong cues out there. So that's how much partisanship um, matters. So let's just return very quickly to the uh, uh, the truther and the birther theories. Um, and again, these are just about mirror images of each other. So Republicans in red um, believing in the birther theory, and Democrats in blue believing mostly in the truther theory, but not in the opposite. So very, very strong partisan cues, and that determines which conspiracy theories we believe in. So if we turn to our little two-dimensional drawing here, you know, there's our there's our truther and there's our birther. Um, the bad news is that we have 50% of the country believing in one of these two conspiracy theories. The good news is that 75% doesn't believe in either. So when you run into problems is when you get majorities starting to believe in the conspiracy theory. And if you can convince both parties of something, that's when you could really run into trouble. So that's why these tend to max out at about 25%, and that's where they do. So our third dimension is power. So I'll just show you some pre- and post-election surveys. So, so before the 2012 election, we asked people, um, do you think that uh, if your candidate doesn't win, that it would have been due to fraud? And equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats said yes. So they're equally concerned that it was going to be rigged. After the election, that number cuts in half. Why? Only losers complain. The winners said, no, it was hunky-dory. It was great. It worked out perfect for me. The losers say, I was cheated. Because winning teams never claim that the refs made a bad call. Right? And if we fast forward to 2016, we redid it, and there are some differences. Um, so Democrats were pretty concerned that there was going to be some, some rigging, um, but it was mostly Republicans, and the reason why was because rigging became a topic of elite debate in the election, with Donald Trump saying, it's going to be rigged, it's going to be rigged, they're out to rig it, and Democratic elites were saying, no, it will not be rigged. So what actually wound up happening was that Democrats started believing in rigging less, and Republicans started believing in rigging more. After the election... Republicans, much less concerned that there was rigging, and, and Democratic numbers went, you know, went down slightly here, but then when, when we polled again in December, um, YouGov has a poll where they ask people, do you think that um, Russians changed vote counts in the voting machines? 50% of Democrats said yes. 
50%. So when we ask people, what types of fraud do you think are occurring in elections? Um, we see, again, mirror images between Republicans and Democrats. So Republicans believe in the type of fraud um, that matches their disposition. So they think that people who shouldn't be voting are going to vote. They're going to bribe their way in or they're going to use fake IDs. Democrats, on the other hand, think that their voters are going to be suppressed by Republicans who won't let them vote. So the types of fraud that they believe in is determined largely by their party, but both parties almost equally think that the counting is rigged. They're in the middle. So my letters to the editor data, um, again, we had a 120,000 letters, about 1,000 a year, over 120 years, from 1890 to 2010, from the New York Times. Um, we picked out all the ones that had a conspiracy theory in them, and then we coded them based on who they were accusing of conspiring. Were they accusing someone on the right, someone on the left, the capitalists, the communists, foreigners, government, <coughs> media, or some other thing? A um, couple things you'll find, just, just looking at this, is that Right and left are seemingly pointing fingers at each other in just about equal numbers. So we're just about concerned as about conservatives and capitalists as we are about leftists and communists. Um, but another thing you'll notice is that Americans love to conspiracy theorize about foreigners. And that's been something that's been going on forever. Um, which is sort of weird because we're on this island... You know, we have a lot of ocean between us and most of the rest of the world, but somehow we're afraid of everyone. Um, and perhaps that drives our military budget, but the military budget should make us a lot less afraid, but it doesn't. Um, so I will just say this, that when Donald Trump spent a lot of his time conspiracy theorizing about foreigners and immigrants, he was tapping into something that's been very long-standing in the United States conspiracy theorizing. If we look over time at who's getting accused in these letters, um, we see a very clear pattern. So during the years that a Republican was president, it was the right and capitalists who were being accused of conspiring. Years that a Democrat was president, it was the left and communists who were being accused mostly of conspiring. So as power shifts back and forth, so do conspiracy theories. So it's the losers who point their fingers at the winners. So a good way... Oh, and one other thing. Um, during times where there actually is an elevated foreign threat, so for example, during the Cold War and during other declared wars, like the Spanish-American, World War I and World War II, um, when there actually is a foreign threat, um, you have a spike in the number of conspiracy theories about foreigners um, and foreign governments. And it goes down about, you know, almost 20 points when we don't have a major war going on. So people do respond um, not only to power, but to threat. So one way to think about it is this, is that the targets and timing of conspiracy theories follow what I call a strategic logic. So conspiracy theories are used by vulnerable groups, people who feel that they're out of power, to manage perceived dangers. So in that way, conspiracy theories are threat perception, and the fears are fundamentally driven by shifts in power that they observe. So because defeat and exclusion are their biggest inducements, conspiracy theories are for losers. But don't feel bad if you feel like a loser, because we live in a democracy, and that, that demands that power change hands from time to time, so that sooner or later everyone's going to play the winner and then the loser. 
So like an insurance plan, where pools of people make regular payments and take turns getting reimbursed, eventually everyone savors the sweet righteousness of the prosecution before having to drink the bitter draft of being persecuted. So conspiracy theories go back and forth. Um, I'll just touch briefly, very briefly on Brexit. Um, but this matches very much with what happened with Trump in my country, is that you had this, this outsider movement of people who felt they were outside the system. They didn't like being ruled by the EU, and they were felt outside of the establishment. And uh, my friends at, at Cambridge, they had a center that had just been studying conspiracy theories um, for a number of years, and they were doing polling um, about two years out from Brexit. And what they found was that about 52% of people in the UK, when asked, do you think the EU is hiding secret plans of integration? About 52% said yes. And that's the exact number of Brexit. We had, I think it was about a third who thought that the EU was building a secret army. Um, polls that were taken um, of, um, of voters after they had just voted in the Brexit vote. 75% of Brexit voters believed the EU was hiding further integration, and that's a lot of what drove their vote, it seems, and about half of them thought that the vote would be rigged. So if you're following Twitter on that night, uh, many people were saying, vote in pen, because if you vote in pencil, you're going to erase it. <laughs> so one thing we know, and I'll just say this, there have been a lot of polling uh, about conspiracy beliefs before and after, and Power hasn't really changed hands in, in the UK. The EU, there's sort of people who wanted Brexit feel good now that they don't think they have to deal with the EU anymore. Um, and we saw, and what we see in some new polling is that conspiracy beliefs among Brexiters has gone down <coughs> since before Brexit. Um, but for, for uh, Remainers, it's, it's largely stayed the same. So Trump and Sanders, and I'm going to, I'd like to start out with Trump, but then I'll sneak Sanders in here because he largely tried to do the same thing. Um, Donald Trump built his campaign on attacking foreign interests. Birth certificate, college transcripts of Barack Obama, foreigners are here to murder and kill us. Um, people coming from Syria um, have ISIS cell phones. The FBI is in on it. Bush did 9-11. Ted Cruz's father killed JFK. Bunch of stuff all over the place, but if you start to look at it all together and take a step back, what you find is that it's really one narrative. And the narrative was that political elites in the United States had sold out the interests of regular Americans to foreign elites. And that was his argument. Um, so some polling during the primary... Um, shows that Trump was really appealing to the conspiracy theorists. So when we gave people, um, there was a poll at Farley Dickinson University that gave a list of conspiracy theories and said, hey, um, which of these do you believe in? And it turned out that the Trump, Trump supporters were more likely to believe in more. And Kasich, who was largely a um, very establishment candidate, his supporters were likely to believe in less. So there is strong evidence um, that Donald Trump supporters um, in the primary were, were very conspiracy-minded and were attracted to him for that reason. Bernie Sanders had a very similar thing, but he had one enemy that the conspiracy was about, is that the 1% controls our entire political and economic systems, um, and that's what he, that's what he focused on. Um, so I'll give you one example of this. So when asked 
Um, when given the statement vaccines do not cause autism, there's about a almost a 20 point difference between Sanders Sanders supporters and Clinton supporters. So Sanders supporters were about 50-50 on the safety of vaccines, whereas Clinton voters were a lot more mainstream in their views. Um, so back to our back to our model. So Hillary Clinton was going after these voters. Um, and you had about 22 or 25 Republicans going for these voters. So the market for Donald Trump when he got in, it wasn't there. He was not going to be able to compete on having political experience or having mainstream political views. He had to go another route. Um, same thing with Bernie Sanders. Um, he was not going to capture that space that Hillary Clinton had. So he was there and Donald Trump was there. And those are the people they went after. And in order, in order for Trump and Sanders to motivate those people, because they were going after conspiracy theorists who are less likely to register or to vote, they had, he had to keep going. Both of them had to keep going with the conspiracy rhetoric over and over and over again to keep them enraged and inflamed so they would turn out. And um, because... Trump was up against 22 people who split the vote. He was able to win, whereas Sanders was not. Sanders and Trump both got 40% in their respective primaries. Um, and that's the story of why Donald Trump, or at least part of it, why he was able to win. Um, when we asked people after, after the election, um, were there millions of illegal voters? That turned out Trump voters said yes. And that's why, that explains why Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, because of all those illegal Mexicans who jumped the border <coughs> to test a Hillary vote. Um, and when we asked, did Russia hack voting machines, Democrats said yes, Republicans said no way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why you see, you got Trump's, or it's not Trump's, but tweets from Trump that said, um, I would have won the popular vote too, except for the three million illegal voters who cast a ballot. So he said that the popular vote was rigged, but not the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. To him, that was hunky-dory, and that turned out just right. So conspiracy theorists can climb the greasy pole to power, um, and Donald Trump did um, in this case. Um, but it's very difficult to stay there. And for that reason, um, he has had to keep his coalition together, his coalition of conspiracy theorists, by constantly using conspiratorial rhetoric in his, in his tweets and in his speeches, and because if he stops doing it, if he goes mainstream, he will lose that coalition of voters. And he counts on the fact that more mainstream Republicans are going to vote for him simply for the fact that they're not going to go and vote for the Democratic candidate. So he can keep them. And for the meantime, he just has to be a conspiracy theorist. So this has led um, in my country right now to just cycles of conspiracy accusations going back and forth. And I'll give you uh, one example because, you know, if you try to piece all this together, you almost never know what's going on. But during the campaign, um, Donald Trump said Hillary Clinton is too old and too weak, too, too weak and too sick to be president. You can't elect her. Um, not that he's in incredible shape, but he said she's the sick one and she's hiding it. Um, so this actually changed her behavior. So when she actually did get sick in September, and, you know, if you shake a million hands, you're going to get sick. And she got the flu. It's very normal. She got the flu, but had to hide it. So she went to a 9-11 memorial in the morning out in the sun and 
she had to leave, and then she passed out on the way into her in, into her van. And they jumped on it, and they said, "This shows she's been hiding her illness all along. She's really sick." And then after the first debate, where she did very well and he didn't do so well, Trump's people came out and said she was carted off the debate stage on a stretcher with an oxygen mask. So what did she have to do? So she had to go on to late night talk shows and prove how strong she was by opening a pickle jar. So there she is opening the pickle jar. And then the next day, what do they say? The pickle jar was already open. <laughs> so we had Picklegate. Um, so going into the election, a lot of the conspiracy theories went from, you know, Hillary Clinton is in a hospital somewhere, but, you know, the person you see is actually a doppelganger running around to some people saying she's dead and we'll be electing a dummy. Um, so we've had witch hunts in the United States. We've had red scares. Um, it's very easy for people to get whipped up. If you have a disposition and then some piece of information that comes in and sparks it, it's very easy to, to be inclined to believe it and then to talk to like-minded people, which is what we're all doing now on social media. And and because we often engage in confirmation bias, where we seek out and privilege information that tells us what we already want to hear, we wind up in our own little bubbles. And we can wind up in a space that's incredibly dangerous. Because if we believe that there are groups who are out to get us at some point, some of us are going to take action. Right now, in Arizona, there's a group of armed men running around looking for child sex games. And the reason they're doing this is because um, they found um, a abandoned tent city where migrant workers were coming into the country. But it then became, it's a child sex trafficking operation. And now we have people running around with guns trying to fight it. And, you know, worst case scenario, which is also a likely scenario, is that these people could wind up just shooting innocent people, vulnerable people, just because of these conspiracy theories have driven them to this. So, um, no matter what you believe, um, just be very careful um, and, and try to be sure that you're not falling into this. Because right now we're in a space where um, there are people who want to ban a lot of things on the internet um, and they want to pass restrictive rules based on their conspiracy thinking, and that can put us in a very dangerous place. Um, so next time you're just sitting around with your friends, having a friendly chat, um, and conspiracy theories come up, um, just remember to uh, you know engage in friendly dialogue and realize you're not going to change minds very easily. But if we listen to each other and realize that we're all just doing the same thing, you know we're following our dispositions and relying on the best information we can, trying to make sense of a very confusing world, then we won't be so bad off. And with that, thank you. Hey, Joe, that was fascinating. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Really enjoyed that. Um, before I go to uh, the audience for questions, I was just thinking about I was thinking about the internet and how you, you've been talking about how conspiracy theories have been a part of American political thinking for a long time. But surely, surely the internet is a level of difference because now you're getting things like deep fakes. You're getting the ability to fake, you know, Barack Obama saying something that he never said. Um, and of course, you've got a level of potential detail there to the an exchange of kind of theories. Is it is it is there a sort of qualitative difference? 
in the in in the now between conspiracy theories? If there is, we haven't found it yet. Okay. So right now, there's no evidence that people are more believing of conspiracy theories now than they were 20 years ago, um, before the internet was really rolled out. So just one anecdote is that belief in JFK conspiracy theories, which is just like one of the biggest ones, has gone down about 20 points since the rollout of the internet. Now, it could be the case that people are more conspiratorial in their thinking now than they were, but there isn't strong evidence yet to suggest it. So polling is ongoing, but but we don't know. Now, about the Internet, it's interesting because you can find any conspiracy theory you want, but, but you sort of hit on it. You go onto Twitter at midnight, you'll find all sorts of weird stuff, but when you come back tomorrow, those things are gone. It's only a small few that are able to stick it out, and there's something about the Internet that really makes conspiracy theories, it's almost evolutionary. Like, only the best ones are going to get through because they can be knocked down really easily too and and you know one thing i say is just because something's on the internet doesn't mean anyone's looking for it we you know i we're familiar with Infowars, which is the alex jones conspiracy site but last time i checked in terms of internet traffic that ranked about 300 in u.s internet traffic the new york times is you know at the time was in the top 10 and there's a whole lot of other stuff in between mostly porn um, that's America, I guess. Um, but people are going to the internet to do all sorts of stuff before they go to get their conspiracy theories, right? So, uh, for, for example, I love eating duck confit. If I go and, and put in duck confit recipe, I get a half million results, but no one's racing home to cook duck confit tonight, right? So just because it's there doesn't mean anyone cares or anyone's looking. So, so, I mean, there's a lot of claims about the Internet, but, I mean, people were claiming things about cable and then regular TV and radio and the printing press um, when that came out. So it's, it's not the cause of every social ill. That's quite reassuring. <laughs> That's quite reassuring. Okay, I'd like to open this out now to questions. Uh, I'll take uh, two at a time, um, and I'll just restate them so it is clear for the podcast. Um, the gentleman in the blue polo shirt. Early on, you said that everyone believes in one conspiracy theory, which is yours. <laughs> um, so on, let me just take another one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that was so that question was everyone believes in one conspiracy theory. Which one do you believe in, Joe? Next question. Um, the uh, gentleman in the uh, with the striped blue and white shirt. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for a very good talk. Uh, my name is Justin Parker, I'm an associate professor here in the Department of Health Policy. Um, the only distinction between a conspiracy and a conspiracy theory comes down to the uh, institution providing evidence, in a sense. Um, you didn't talk much more about that in terms of when we trust institutions and when we should trust institutions. You mentioned the Warren Commission. Yeah. Um, would you trust, for example, the, the House Intelligence Commission, that committee at the moment? Um, you mentioned you know, trust in drug companies. I, I, I work in health policy. I don't trust drug companies. I've seen enough evidence that they do, you know, Cook their books, they manipulate trials. I trust epidemiologists independently. Um, and that then affects the validity of the conspiracy, does it not? Because when you put up all your com comparisons, you never actually mentioned which one had valid evidence supporting them or not. So I know lots of corporations that have acted in conspiratorial ways Volkswagen with emissions, uh, Exxon with you know, climate change, the pharmaceutical into Glaxo, etc. I don't know of any evidence of communists doing this, but you held them up as these are equal. Mm -hmm. conspiracies. So how much does that matter? 
Um, okay, let me just paraphrase the okay. podcast. Uh, that's quite long. Um, so uh, sometimes there is perfectly valid evidence that there are conspiracies going on of one type or another, um, but you didn't make that distinction when you were talking about the conspiracies between the idea that, say, pharmaceutical companies are covering things up, which we know they have, and uh, communists are doing it, which is seriously more unlikely. Is that a reasonable paraphrase? Great. Please go ahead. Okay, so the, the first question was, which ones do I believe yeah. in? So... Um, doing this for almost 10 years now, um, I guess it's going to be a boring answer. I, I'm sure I do believe in a few if we were to list them down. I'd be like, yeah. Um, but most of the ones that are popular, no. Because once you start looking into it, you're like, that's, you know, there's really nothing there. Um, but I grew up um, a JFK conspiracy theorist, and I loved the Oliver Stone movie. Um, but now that I show it in class every year, I've seen it about 20 times, and I realize that it's baloney. <laughs> Not only because the director says so, like, I made up half the stuff, um, but most people don't don't look that far into it. They're like, oh my god, but everyone's in on it. Everyone is in on the conspiracy, and there's only one guy fighting it. <laughs> So, so you believe Oswald acted alone? Yeah. Really? Yes. And sixty percent of Americans disagree with you. That's right. <laughs> but I've been in the minority before on many things. You know? <laughs> I'm a libertarian, so I don't have any friends. You know. <laughs> um. So, so that's what I believed in, and that's and that and that was sort of a big thing for me. Um. You know, I will say this. My birthday is 9-11. I was at 9-11 because I'm a Yankees Red Sox fan, and they had a game that night on 9-10, which I went to. And then as I was – I don't know what, why I decided to do this, but I'm like, I'll walk towards the buildings um, see what's going on. And um, was taking pictures, and I got a picture, and it seemed like the military got out really early, and they had heavy machine guns on every corner. And I was snapping photos with a little, I don't even think they have these Kodak cameras anymore, disposable. And I took a picture of one of the guys with a heavy machine gun. It was like, you know, maybe 11.30 a.m. And he said, no pictures allowed. And I thought, is it is it the case that they're trying to cover something up? Or is it the case that this guy just has the scared out of him? And he's in a very uncertain situation. He doesn't know what to do. And he's just trying to find some method of control. So at the time, I didn't know, but now I'm going to air with the, he was just trying to find some method of control. Um, as to that question, I think you have a two-part question. So when do you trust the authorities? And I don't think I have a clear blanket rule, and there's actually a lot of um, social epistemologists who are working on this right now. So there's been about 20 years of, of work by philosophers trying to figure out what is a conspiracy theory, when should we believe it, and when shouldn't we believe it? Because a lot of these arguments come down to, well, my conspiracy theory has better evidence than their conspiracy theory. Um, you know, and there are times when the people I think that are doing bad things where they clearly have done wrong things, right? Um, but the other side's going to say the exact same thing. And as you pull out your anecdotes, they're going to pull out theirs. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, we have to be very fickle with who we pick as our, as our people if there's a conflict of interest, like if the corporation is saying, my drug's safe, then we probably want an independent person to test it, right? And those are the people we should trust. Um, so you mentioned, would I trust a House committee? I'll give you an example. So I say I trust the Warren Commission, but the House actually had a commission on assassinations in the late 1970s. 
where they looked into the the assassinations of Kennedy and of Martin Luther King Jr. and I think Bobby Kennedy too. And they their conclusion at that time was, yes, we think there was a conspiracy. We don't know what. There could be mafia involvement, but we don't know. So if people at that time said, "Well, I'm going to trust I'm going to trust the House of Representatives," then they would have said, "Yeah." You know, and I and I don't blame them for it, right? We're all trying to make sense of the world because we can't experience these things ourselves. We have to rely on someone else to to garner the knowledge and then come to a conclusion for us, right? As it turned out, the evidence that the House committee was relying on was not very good. And then when better technology was was um, invented to look at the tapes that they were relying on, it was turned out that, you know, what they heard was not really what they heard. So they were wrong. But I, I take your point perfectly that some are going to be better evidence than others. There's always some evidence for all of these. Even the guy who believes in the lizard people has 11... 800-page books out that he's published with what he's going to tell you as evidence, right? Three million votes? Is the evidence any more than a tweet? The evidence for... So if you ask people who believe in this, they'll be like... They'll pull out a whole list of times where they've caught people illegally voting. They'll pull out, oh, there was this vote or that vote there. Um, But here's the thing with conspiracy theories, and this is what makes them so... Why um, epistemologists have to grapple with them so much is because evidence... For them is evidence for them. Evidence against them is evidence for them. Because you say, well, I have ev- there's no evidence showing that uh, there were three million illegal voters. Well, that only proves my point, because they were voting in darkness. Uh, so, and then they say, well, we have all the commissions who looked into this and say that it's bunk. Well, they're in on it, obviously. <laughs> right? So there's the, the, it's built into the idea of conspiracy theory. Let's take a couple more questions. Um, the gentleman on the right with the sunglasses. Um, yep. Um, sorry, I'm not there. <laughs> sorry, I just saw one of your chairs. Yeah. Uh. Um, I understand that President Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame has been destroyed by a man with a pickaxe. Um, and Winston Churchill uh, said that a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Um, isn't it human nature to just go with focusing on symptoms rather than the root causes? Don't we have this? Have we always had this? When we always had this approach to the news, the reporting. Okay. Um, so can I just uh, focus on the symptoms rather than the causes? So in a, in a way, we're we're more interested in in we're not interested in in the actual explanations for things. We're we're distracted by the events. Is that what you're saying? I just wanted to understand your question yeah, properly. Whether the facts are, are yeah. one kind or alternative um, is almost irrelevant because it's people, people believe what they believe and people tend to vote in the way that they vote and it's turnout that matters far more in American elections than in almost anything else. Okay. Um, the uh, person on the back row uh, with you. Yeah, that's it. I think Okay, thanks. Right, first question. Um, that's yeah, talking about 
human nature is it focus on symptoms and and not really be terribly interested in the facts is that is that the case so michael Shermer has a good analogy that he gives and say it could be evolutionary right if you were um a cave person walking around and you hear a rustle in the brush um there are two types of errors you can make you can ignore it when there's actually a, a big cat there ready to eat you or you can go stab into it um and there's no big cat there but one error saves your life the other one just wastes your time right so if you decide that there's no big cat wrestling in the brush and you decide to do not you decide to walk away but there is you're you're meat so you know, consider it maybe an evolutionary form of cheater detection, a way to defend ourselves, a way to, to look out for who might be out to get us. Um, and, th- and there's something about that in human nature, and some of us have that tendency more than others. right? But we all have it to at least a little degree. Um, so it's always been there. And if you go back in history, I mean, we were burning witches at the stake because we thought they were conspiring with Satan. Then we were worried about the Bavarian Illuminati. Then the Freemasons. Um, and the list just goes on and on and on. Mormons, Muslims, capitalists, communists, you know, you name it. But it's always there. Right? And and just as people are freaking out now about these supposed um, child sex rings that the Democrats are running all over the country, um, 25 years ago, we were worried about the satanic sex rings. And the Satanists had taken over police departments and they were in satanic rituals everywhere. And it's taken us 20 years to let people out of jail who are running daycare centers because we accuse them of um, shooting children, then bringing them back to life with satanic spells and um, flushing children down toilets into hell and then bringing them back. And they went to jail for this. 20 years. Now they're getting millions of dollars as they should. But just as we're fixing the wrongs of one witch hunt, we're still ready to go on others. And it's like we have to, people have to step back when they get too, too excited. So in terms of the, the second question, there are good and bad things with partisanship. On the good, good part is competition. So having a little bit of distrust between the two parties can be very healthy. And that you want people competing for, um, for power so that they have to perform well. Um, on the other hand, it can also get corrosive to the point where if people have really thick lenses on, they can't see when they're being duped by their own people. And, and, and that's a problem. And, and it can create, you know, a lot of social problems, too, because when we're, you know, particularly in the U.S. now where the sorting is getting so strong. So if I know one or two things about a person, I can, I can predict their party, you know. So right now, all these things are coming into alignment for people, their party, the music they listen to, the movies they watch, where they live, um, their racial characteristics, their religious beliefs, their economic beliefs, the jobs they have. And once these things all get in lockstep, you wind up not having connections with the other side. So part of the American experiment was always about, you know, having cross-cutting interests where you'd have lots of divisions. So even if you disagreed with somebody on one dimension, you'd have a connection with them on a few others. Um, but that's sort of going away now, and I don't know how it how it gets reversed, and I don't think anyone does. But I mean, one thing that political scientists are figuring out is that, you know, this sounds bad, but democracy 
is a great experiment. It's not all we're learning. It's not all it's cracked up to be because people are sort of they act irrationally, mm-hmm. and and my data sort of tells you the story. People believe a lot of things that don't have very good evidence to support them. One of the things we're seeing in the UK at the moment, of course, is that kind of solidifying solidifying views around leave and remain. And the more time that goes on, the more people get solidified those views. So it's not actually the parties, I don't think. I think there's still, in Britain, I think there's still quite a high tolerance among most people for, among Labour supporters, Conservative supporters, and vice versa. But with leave and remain, it's just taking on a completely different... And same thing with, with, yeah. with Trump and... and uh... Clinton supporters, like the people who believed that Hillary Clinton was demonic. And there's polls that show, I think it was about 25% thought she was demonic and smelled like sulfur. I mean, how do you, once those beliefs become that, that radical, I mean, how do you engage with that person? So um, there's an information problem, but there's also a willingness to believe the worst possible thing about people who aren't like you. And that's that's that is part of the human condition. Right. More questions. Um, the lady with the black glasses and the earrings. Um, I'd like to ask a methodological question. Um, I just wanted to know whether or not you think the most conspiratorial are likely not to write into the New York Times or to answer surveys, and therefore what might be missing from the account in terms of our understanding of conspiracy. Thanks. And next one, uh, anybody else? Uh, Chris in the front row. <laughs> um, my, my question is just more about when do conspiracies, conspiracy theories, morph into an actual agenda for, for change and actually become a real thing, if that makes sense. So if you look at Trump's birtherism, that by any scale of analysis wasn't true. There was no evidence for it other than that was manufactured or sort of not. But look, using the example of Bernie Sanders, 1%. I would argue that would only, it's targeting the ones, and that would only, that only became prominent because of Piketty's work the previous year or year before on inequality, really pushing that to the forefront. And there's a lot of evidence that 1% are actually, you know, keeping a lot of wealth, and there's the whole thing about the dream hoarders that's come recently. And that seems to me to be more of an actual agenda rather than a conspiracy theory. So maybe I'm misunderstanding, I'd just be interested to hear your thoughts on, on that. Okay, so the first question was um, really about survey data. Um, are the most conspiratorial people really likely to write into the New York Times? And that was, of course, what you were, the, the data you were using. So it's, it's hard to know, and I'm sure there's some people who aren't going to write in or read an establishment paper like the New York Times. Um, but in order to get a, a broader set, that's sort of what we had to go with. Um, but I would say this. We had some wacky letters in there. <laughs> so, you know, people ask us, well, don't the editors take out the crazy stuff? And the answer is no. Um, so if they get a lot of things saying something, they're going to they're gonna publish it. And we have evidence of that over time. And, we have, and what, one thing we did is what, we went back and found statements by the letters to the editor editors over the last um, hundred years. And they make statements saying, you know, if people say things that are, are weird or outstanding, you know, we're going to print the stuff, not just the things that we believe or the things we think are mainstream. Um, so, so that was their agenda. So, so the weird stuff got through. I know the weird stuff got through. I could share some things. Um, so that's there. And in terms of surveys, um, when we, it could be the case that, that the really most conspiratorial people like if there's people hiding in a bunker somewhere with guns waiting for the end time, they may they may not be picking up the phone or answering you know you, you know surveys. 
So we may be missing that, but that's not really taking away from our data because we still have a whole lot of other people who are answering yes. And, and when we do ask the conspiracy questions, we don't get a lot of drop off. Right. I mean, it could be the case that some people are lying. Like, and and there, there are some experiments now that show that a few people will say they believe in lizards that really don't. And, and that makes me feel good because that number was 4%. If there's a survey mar a margin of error of 3.5, then that's good. And hopefully it's on the downward slope. So, um, and, and then Chris's yeah, question. Yeah, Chris's question was about when do conspiracy theories morph? beliefs morph into a real agenda and he was talking about Bernie Sanders and his uh, beliefs about the 1% okay so if, if you think that the power, rich people have a lot of power and control over some things in, in our political uh, agenda or, or in our politics then that's absolutely true but Bernie Sanders takes that a lot further and he isn't doing this just because of Thomas Piketty so I went back and got Bernie Sanders statements all the way back to his early campaigns in Vermont. And he's been, he wasn't always using the term 1%, but he was always arguing the, the same thing to the same people. He, his movement was always based on going people who are going after voters who are outside the system, who haven't voted before, who feel disenfranchised by the mainstream. So, so we can agree that rich people can get a lot of influence in, in the system. But when he says things like, um, they have agreed that knows no end. They are making it hard for us to survive. Now you're in, that's conspiracy territory. And, and I could go on and on with statements from him. But he's not doing it to build some empirical argument based on, here's my belief that I learned from Thomas Piketty. Because he says two conflicting things. Just as Hitler said, the Jews were both um, subversive communists and rapacious money capitalists. They both can't be true, right? Just as Hitler did that to blame the Jews, what does Bernie Sanders say about the 1%? They've rigged the economy. It's a rigged game. And on the other hand, he says, they're free market gamblers, gambling in the system. It can't be both. It cannot be both. And there's somebody in this country who uses those exact two lines to talk about the corporations in this country. Are you going to tell us who it is? Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> <laughs> and because the, the, the rhetoric between the two is exactly the same. Interesting. Right, any more questions? Um, yes, the lady with, uh, on the far left with the glasses and green top. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I meant the I meant the lady there. <laughs> you you had your uh, you had your uh, arm in the yeah, didn't you? Yes. Most entertaining one. And next question. Um, yes, the other lady. <laughs> okay. um, so you touched on this a bit in your talk, um, but I'm wondering if you can expand a bit more on. The fact that usually conspiracy theories are the purview of the losers, and now in the U.S. we have a conspiracy theorist who's a winner in charge. Um, and I'm also kind of secondarily to that, wondering if there's anything that we can do to combat those views, or if you just kind of have to wait for the theory to die down. Great. Uh, first question was, what's the most uh, entertaining conspiracy theory you've come across? So a really good one in the New York Times in the early 70s um, was sort of a reaction to the women's movement at the time. And it was an accusation that the CIA had created lesbianism um, as, a, as sort of a, a, a way to take down the women's movement. 
And the theory goes, and this was actually printed in the New York Times. So we got what our data picked up a letter that somebody had written in in response to what somebody had written. Somebody had actually written an article with this conspiracy theory in it, uh, purporting it. And they said that the CIA was creating lesbians, then sending those lesbians into the women's movement to seduce um, members of the women's movement get them in to do lesbian acts and then film it and then use it against them as blackmail to overtake the women's movement. So I always thought that was very entertaining. So that, that's, that's a pretty, pretty good, good one. Creating lesbians, that's a good one, yeah. Um, so the second question was uh, about the fact you, you were saying conspiracy theorists are usually the purview of losers, but now we have someone in the White House who is a winner. And as we know, we're just going to get so tired of winning. We I believe was the phrase he used in his tw- a tweet. That, well, we're going to be so tired. So can I, can I ask where that, where that, that accent is from? Uh, D.C. area. Okay. Because <laughs> I was going to say Massachusetts for one of your words. So I think you said talk. <laughs> um, so, uh, so we have a winner doing it now, and there's a reason. It's because he built his coalition with conspiracy theorists. And to keep them part of his coalition, he has to constantly go at it. So for that reason, even though he won, and even though he's got control of the White House, the House, the Senate, and the courts, presumably for decades now, if he makes his appointment, I mean, he, he's a big winner. Um, he, he has to keep doing this to, to keep his, his coalition together. And that's why. So the reason why it's so big in the uh, American political agenda is because when you have the elites speaking in those terms, the media, I mean, has to cover their their rhetoric. So now our media is just all about conspiracy theories. So I did a a check um, when I was finishing my latest book, um, November of 2017. I looked at at the month of November 2017. I think there was a couple hundred articles. um, Let me just say all of 2017. There were hundreds of articles hundreds of articles um, with the term conspiracy theory in it. When I went back 40 years prior to 1977, um, there were very few, and in the month of November, there were zero. So it just wasn't on the political agenda at the time, um, speaking in these terms. And it's because we have elites who are just openly doing it. But the the Democrats don't get a free pass. They are doing it too. Um, and like I said, when we do polls of Democrats, you know, 50% say Russians hacked the voting machines. That didn't happen. You know, even Obama said it didn't happen. So 50% believe it. And the Trump-Russia stuff, even if you think it's likely that Trump conspired with Russia to do something, the theories in the U.S. have gone way beyond that. Because first of all, there's an investigation that has yet to find that. Um, but every time they find anything, it only proves how right they are. I mean, it's true, there are arrests, but Manafort, who was arrested, was doing stuff long before the campaign, but that has nothing to do with Trump-Russia, really, um, as far as we know. Um, And Donald Trump, I mean, there's no smoking gun yet. So there are people who are convinced that there's a Trump-Russia conspiracy theory, Um, but it, it hasn't been proven yet, and these people now are playing tennis without a net, because everything that happens just proves how right they are. And the theories just keep morphing all around to the latest thing. Um, and I can give you some examples, but early, um, maybe about a year and a half ago, there's a big news story. We just found out that Jared Kushner, the son-in-law, um, was looking for a backdoor to Russia. 
And they said, aha, we found it. We found the link. Um, and that just proves that they rigged the election. And then they left out the second half of the, of the story, which was in January of 2017. And then they move on to the next tidbit or breadcrumb. So it's, I mean, the, the conspiracy thinking is there and it's heightened on the Democrat side. And it, and, it, and it may be the case that they are right about some things, but in the end, they're going to be wrong about a whole lot more. And even the things they're right about, their beliefs will have been well out in front of it. So, Any more questions? Uh, the lady in the, at the very back with the bracelet. <laughs> Okay, thanks. Um, another question? Uh, lady there with blue top. Um, have you identified any trends in Okay, thanks. So the first question was about um, the media and in particular Trump and Russia, but also Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction, which never really existed. Um, how, how can you trust the media, given that they've got things so very wrong in the past? So I don't trust them any more than I trust anyone else. <laughs> right so everyone i have my own biases you have yours the uh, journalists have their own um and it's not always as simple as they're liberal and they're conservative there are lots of biases that we can study and then find evidence for um in different media outlets so the best thing that people can do is just read multiple outlets to get multiple views and then w another thing i say too and this is hard to work but Follow up if, if a topic interests you now and it disappears, follow up on it later because a lot of times we get the flashbang and then the truth is something very different, but you don't hear it till a year later when nobody cares. So I, I, I always, you know, try to believe, you know, but with some margin of error, right? And in terms of, um, uh, was it a conspiracy theory that Saddam Hussein took part in 9 11? Technically, that is a conspiracy theory, but at the time, this is what we were dealing with, is that our be the best information that was being given to us from the administration was, what, was that that was the case, right? So, in a lot of ways, and this will come back to your question over here, is that that, that was sort of official knowledge that just turned out to be dead wrong, Right? So I, I'm not convinced that they were attempting to motivate people with a conspiracy theory. I think that they were trying to give information that was just wrong. Now, this is a really good question, though, because there are, there are other stories, there are other studies that, that use this as a conspiracy theory. Do you think Saddam Hussein took part in 9-11? And it's sort of, it's a weird juxtaposition because if people don't pay very close attention to politics and just turn on the TV one night in 2003 and saw the president say Saddam Hussein took part in 9-11 and they believe it, are they engaging in conspiracy theorizing or are they just listening to the best information that they have? I mean, for them, it's just listening to the best information that they have. So the second question was about whether you'd identified any trends, any reasons why people stop believing in conspiracy theories, if they do. Well, I suppose in the case of the uh, JFK, they do. You said they did. Uh, yeah. So one thing you find is that interest waxes and wanes, is, wanes often with power. So if we look at people looking at 9-11, um, um, as soon as Bush um, left office and Obama came in, 
9-11 stuff really became politically inert. They just didn't care anymore. And the anti-war left didn't care about war either. You know, so their interests were like, we have our guy in there, time to move on with life and pay attention to other things. So uh, the people who, you know, believe 9-11 was a hoax, which was about 40% of Democrats, um, they were no longer concerned once they felt that they had power and it wasn't something they were going to pursue. So um, and another good example I'll give you is that Republicans were freaking out um, when Justice Scalia died. Because they had heard that the Supreme Court Justice uh, uh, Scalia, that he died in Texas, and then they heard there was a pillow above his head. Which, if you stay in a hotel, there's a pillow above your head. But they took that to mean there was a pillow on his head with Obama's handprints in the pillow. And they said he must have killed him um, because this is going to give Obama the chance to shape the Supreme Court. And this was a big thing. He did it. We need to look in. Even Trump said, we have to look into that. But once he didn't get the, the pick, everyone, no, one, no one even thinks about this anymore. So it's, it's gone. Uh, one more question I think we have time to take. I, before, was was there a third, though, or something I missed? No, I think that was it. Okay, yeah, there was one thing that I think, that, that I think comes back here, and there's who do you trust, right? So I mentioned that the president said, hey, you know, we've got evidence that Saddam Hussein did this. So I guess to give you a better answer, it's that the people you should trust are, are the institutions that, that are trained to analyze particular types of data, whether data is open and their methods are open and available for everyone to scrutinize and look at. So I guess that's the best answer I can give you. Um, so if someone says, I have secret evidence of this, but I can't show you, then, then the error bars have to expand out because then you can't test it right one more question anybody oh. gentleman in the yellow t-shirt um i'd I like to say that i mean we use the term conspiracy theory a lot but cooperation between, between people who is also a type of conspiracy and if um and so, I mean, you may not believe that voter fraud is real, but gerrymandering certainly is real, isn't it? So, so I mean, yes, I mean, it, I it is. What's your question? Reason, and you're, you're against conspiracy, and you slander everybody who believes in them, and they're they're losers in your view. But but you know, gerrymandering is is real, as you say. It's not a conspiracy. Right. And so so. Hundred and five million Americans didn't vote either Democrat or Republican. Are all of them losers too? What's your question? Um, uh, going to the issue of the terminology conspiracy theory was started by the CIA in order to dispel uh, the questions about the Kennedy assassination. It was the CIA themselves who came up with that term. Okay. So, 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 so I'll take that. That's, that's absolutely false. And I hope that you believe me because that's, there's no truth to it. And I understand that it's a long-running conspiracy theory, that conspiracy theorists think the term was created by the CIA to get them. But it's not true. Who started it? It's, it's so, so in my forthcoming book, available soon on Amazon, um, I started the theory to make money now. So, um, so I have a chapter in it written by somebody at Cambridge, and they go back through all the newspapers. And when you first see used... 
uh, when you first see the term conspiracy and theory together in a way um, that's attached to the concept of conspiracy theory is back in the 1870s um, after the assassination or the assassination of President Garfield. And that's the first time where it starts coming up. And and it's been used. Um, the term comes up in the New York Times long before the 1960s. Um, so 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 that's not true. And I don't. I could spend. You, you, you know, they give me 45 minutes to talk, and I can't say everything. And it's and and one thing I would say if I had more time is that I don't intend to slander everyone, and I want everyone to be nice. And if you think I'm not nice, then I'm happy to 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 to, to say you're wrong. Um, um, but I use the term because it's common and people understand what it means. Other scholars have come up with terms like state crimes against democracy or whatnot. Um, but I just find that that's the better term so people know what I'm talking about. Um, I know that it's sometimes used to slander people. And the term conspiracy theorist is often looked down upon. So in my, in my forthcoming book, um, we've done a poll where we ask people, who do you like the least, atheists, homosexuals, or conspiracy theorists? And conspiracy theorists come out the lowest um, for liberals, but highest for conservatives, because at the time they were being called conspiracy theorists all the time, so they didn't think they were that bad. The, cons the conservatives don't like the atheists. No, liberals don't mind them. So I, I understand where you're coming from that, but there's no real way I can get around it. And as I said, when I used the term losers, I was quite clear to say that it's descriptive, not pejorative, and we're all losers, and we're all conspiracy theorists in one way or another. So in that, we, we do have commonality, you know. And when I use the term conspiracy theory, I don't say it's wrong. I say it could be true, right? It could be true. So that's it for this extra inning of The Ballpark. Thanks to Joe Uzinski and Roz Taylor for participating. This Ballpark Extra Inning was produced by Becca Potton and with help from the LSE's Annual Fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the show by emailing us at uscenter at lse.ac.uk or sending us a tweet at lse underscore ballpark. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast don't reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.